May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please, would you sit? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The opening verse of the psalm we're looking at today, it's Psalm 73, and you'll find it, please, on page 586. It could have been the first line of a worship song in its day, since Asaph, who wrote it, led one of the temple choirs. And like the songs and hymns we have just sung, this verse declares a truth about God which we know by faith, even if when we actually sing the words, our experience suggests something different. That was certainly the case for the psalmist. And we follow him on a journey as he questions whether God is in fact good to his people. It's a journey which takes him through the wastes of doubt and envy, into the pit of self-pity, by the hard places of confusion and bitterness of spirit, to where he ends up on a high rock of renewed faith. Now, many of us will be in those very places of confusion, of self-pity, as I speak. We may feel spiritually we have lost our way. Well, let's go with the psalmist as he tells the story of how he came through those places to be so sure, so sure of God's goodness. Verse 1, surely God is good. It's a strong statement of faith from one who belongs to God's people, Israel, and who seeks to be pure in heart. Now, he's not saying that he is morally beyond reproach. No, he's saying he seeks wholeheartedly to live God's way. And many of us here would want to echo that statement. It's what we are told in Scripture about God. It's what we want to believe and how we want to relate to him. But, but, and maybe sooner or later for all of us, there comes a but. When our faith in the goodness of God towards us personally is called into question. And usually the trigger is some form of personal suffering. For Asaph, the crisis of faith was so severe that he says, verse 2, My feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold. It would have taken almost nothing to make him abandon God and the pathway of faith altogether. And he now reflects on why this should be. And with the benefit of hindsight, he sees that he was distracted from the path of verse 1 by three false guides, three unhelpful ways of interpreting his experience. And the first of these is going by what we can see going by what we can see. Verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw 
the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist looked with his eyes at those around him. In fact, it says, I kept on looking and going by what he saw. He came to certain conclusions about those people, which in turn raised questions about God. Now, the group he focused it on are the arrogant and the wicked. Now, as Alan pointed out in his sermon on Psalm 1, we're not necessarily to think of the wicked in a strongly moral sense. Then it would be too easy to dismiss this teaching as irrelevant, since I suspect not many of us here actually want to be like the downright perverse and criminal members of our society. I may be wrong. Here is where it's helpful reading the text in different versions, since no one English translation can accurately do justice to the original Hebrew. And I'd encourage all of you to do this whenever you're studying a Bible passage. Read it in as many translations as you can get hold of. Anyway, Martin Luther translated this word into German as die Gottlosen, those who are without God. So their arrogance is a way of describing how they depend on themselves. They've no need of God. And now we're talking about the majority of people we know, the people we work with, the people we live amongst. Why might we envy them? Well, because life seems to go easy for them. Verse 4, they have no struggles. They seem to be in good health. Verse 6, they seem carefree. Sorry, verse 5, carefree. They seem to have none of the moral issues that we have as believers. So we might well wonder, what is the point of denying ourselves sexual freedom when all around us, that's the norm? Or why are we struggling so hard to get ourselves or our children to church when most people just do what they please. And moreover, the psalmist feels when he looks at these people that they get away with all kinds of bad deeds and behavior. Violence, verse 6. Iniquity, from callous hearts, verse 7. Speaking malice, verse 8. Boasting, verse 9. And all, verse 11, with God apparently taking no notice. He sums it up in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Now, I suggest that it's not an objective view at all. I don't know a single person, godly or godless, who is always carefree. But if you go primarily by what you see... I suggest this is a dangerous guide in discerning the way of truth. Remember the serpent tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden to doubt the goodness of God. And when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she ate it with all the appalling consequences of separation from God. Be very wary of going just by what you can see. It's an unwise guide. Secondly, going by what we feel. Going by what we feel. 
Having looked at the behavior that the godless get away with, the psalmist begins to feel sorry for himself and to ask what's the point in all the effort and self-control that he's going through to try and live like those in verse 1. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Behind the repetition of in vain lies the voice of self-pity. Observe when you next feel sorry for yourself, how you rehearse and go over the arguments to dwell on the unfairness of your lot. The psalmist is no different. He emphasizes that he's been troubled all day long, verse 14, and punished every morning. The implication is he feels that God has somehow treated him like this in spite of his trying to live in a godly manner. In fact, verse 21, he feels so grieved and embittered in his spirit that he lashes out at God, describing himself as like a brute beast before God. And thus the negative feelings eventually lead to a breakdown in his relationship with God. Sadly, I have seen this happen many, many times. When an unhappy marriage between Christians finally breaks under the strain, then faith in a good God gives up with it. Or when after much prayer and faith, a believer is not healed and dies, then faith in a good God can die too. It's not my place to judge such responses. What would happen to my faith in such circumstances, I don't know. But I do know that going by what you feel is an inadequate guide. Our feelings are notoriously fickle, and they can impact our sense of well-being to a disproportionate degree, and some personality types more than others. Now, what I'm not saying is that we should completely disregard what we see with our eyes nor what we feel, but they are unreliable guides to living a life which pleases God or indeed for trying to interpret what God is up to. Third unreliable guide, going by what we can understand. Going by what we can understand. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. The psalmist sees what is going on in the lives of the godly and the godless. He feels what's going on inside himself. And he tries to make sense of how all this fits in with what he declared in verse 1. How can God surely be good when the godless prosper and the godly suffer. It just doesn't add up. And such confusion is very hard to live with. I'm sure many of us can identify with that word oppressive, when our minds just cannot hold all the factors in a situation. We can't consider all the options, and we lose any sense of what is right or even how we begin to work out what is right. 
And at these times, we may be tempted to give up, even despair. So our minds, yes, are an important guide for us, but like our eyes and our feelings, they have their limitations. Certainly, if we're trying to discern who God is and what God is doing. So where can the psalmist go to find his way? How can he steer a path through the perplexity? End of verse 16. It was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Till I entered. Perception is granted to those who consciously enter God's presence and humbly seek God's face. We need to learn this whenever we are perplexed. To avoid the temptations to envy others, the lure of self-pity, even the root of despair, we need to keep on entering the presence of God, directing our steps towards him and alongside him seeing things, beginning to see things, seeing a little bit of things as he sees them. Now for the psalmist, this means first of all realizing what is truly going on for the godless. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. To his human eyes and mind, such people were always carefree. But he now sees that that is not the end of the story. They are not in control. None of us is in control of our final destiny. And he says of the godless, verse 18, Surely you, God, place them on slippery ground. It's God who places them. God is ultimately the one in charge. He will, verse 19 and 20, cause them to be swept away and destroyed. And when God chooses to rise up, they will be shown to have no more substance than a dream when you wake in the morning. Now, on one level, such insight does not remove the problem of why the godless seem to prosper now, nor of why the godly seem to suffer. But it does put it in perspective, God's perspective, an eternal perspective. If, as readers, we look carefully at the text, we notice that up to this point, the whole of the first 16 verses, the psalmist sees everything revolving around me, I, and talking about they, them. But now that he has entered into the sanctuary of God, the rest of the psalm becomes a conversation with God as you. You cast them down. You hold me. You guide me. The past, the present, and the future all are seen in the context of this central relationship with God. Remembrance Sunday. We recall the reality of death. And it's a good time for us to reflect on what we, the living, are doing with our lives. 
For what we choose here and now has consequences. We can choose to live primarily for the now that we can see and we can understand, doing our best, probably most of us far from being wicked. But the word of God is very clear, verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. This is a description of every person who has chosen to go their own way and to leave God out of the picture. God's heaven is only for those who have chosen to be near him on earth. Verse 25 makes that clear. Heaven confirms that choice for eternity. Moreover, going by the vantage point of God's perspective, the psalmist also realizes who is his own true guide. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. The faith which he articulated in verse 1 as God being generally good now becomes deeply personal. He himself has come to know that daily reality that he is with God. And being with God cannot be taken away from him whatever the circumstances Whenever life is bewildering, painful, seemingly unfair, he still has the assurance that God is with him. And death brings not separation, but a fuller being with God in glory. The faith that the psalmist has come to is nevertheless realistic. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. Many of us here who struggle with chronic pain and depression and conditions with no foreseeable cure, we can identify with that comment. And so can those of us who experience deep disappointments and heaviness of heart. My flesh and my heart may fail. But there is a deeper reality still. But God is the strength of my heart. Other versions have God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. This is a great psalm to pray through whenever you feel you are losing perspective. When life next deals you some blow which threatens to engulf you. When you're tempted to envy someone their situation, their marriage, their children, their home. Or when circumstances just don't make sense. Go into the secret place of God's presence. Keep going there. And ask him to show you a glimpse of how he sees things. You may be surprised what he shows you. And more than that, I pray that you will each know for yourself the result of this choice, a choice that we need to keep renewing, the final verse of the psalm. But as 
For me, it is a personal choice. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Amen.